It really is about sharing abundance. The gift economy is not based on a trade. It's a true thing of a gift. The best place to store your excess food is in your neighbour's belly. Welcome to Somewhere Else, the podcast that chats to people living in weird and wonderful ways. Each episode, your hosts, Domain Editors January Jones and Rose Donoghue, interview someone who's ditched the white picket fence for the path a little less travelled. Hello, JJ. How are you going? I'm good, thanks, Rose. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, good. How are your, how are your travels going? Are you running out of money yet? <laughs> That's a nice way to start the conversation. <laughs> well, I think it feeds into our episode theme today. Frugal living, absolutely. Look, I I am living a little bit frugally over here, if only because I don't have a credit card for the first time in my sort of working life. And I never used to have like credit card debt or anything, but it meant that when it got to the end of the month or the pay cycle and I needed something, I would just put it on the credit card and pay it off like the next day. But here I don't have that. And it's the first time that I'm, I'll actually get down to my last, you know, a few euros or something because I've put some money away to save and stuff. And I'm, it's sort of, it's weirdly thrilling. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, you a credit card user? Oh, look, a little bit, but I would say I'm pretty frugal. I'm definitely the more frugal one in my relationship. <laughs> we have spoken about that before, but I think you also don't mind Afton sort of, you know, treating you to the odd weekend away and no, luxury it's a, experience. It's a good balance. You need someone who's a bit fiscally responsible and then you need the person who's, you know, ready to open the purse strings and kind of splurge a little bit. So I think it's a good balance that we've got going on. Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting with my boyfriend. He has a weird thing where he actually didn't know what he earned until I sort of suggested that maybe he should try and find out because he said, <laughs> I don't run out of money. There's always money in my bank when I need it. Um, and I save the same amount every month. So why would I need to know what's coming in? And I just could not understand that. I can't understand that either. That is crazy to me. <laughs> It was sort of weirdly endearing, though. That's probably because I love him, but <laughs> yeah, I found that very funny. Well, he must be pretty responsible with money then, you'd think. Well, see, this is why he gets away with it, because he doesn't really buy anything. He doesn't, he doesn't buy clothes. He's not sort of interested in, in buying many things apart from maybe beers and food on the weekend and, you know, likes travelling. So if he was a big spender, I'd definitely be more onto him to find out exactly what he's got coming in. But it seems to work. So there you go. There you go. Now, you and I are both homeowners and I want to ask Rose, how did you save for your home? Um, I actually had a weird sort of moment maybe five years ago where I was working in a newsroom and I got asked to write an article about how 50% of Australians don't have maybe it was $2,000 squirreled away for a rainy day. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll write that article. And in my mind was going, I don't have any savings. I'm a total loser. What have I been doing? And I think from then on I started saving about 30% of my paycheck for the next few years um, and then was also luckily enough to be helped out by my grandmother when it sort of came time to put down a deposit for an apartment. Um, so it was sort of 50% of that and 50% of my grandma. What about you? So I had always wanted to buy a house. My mum was very pro buying a house. Um, and so I had been saving for a little while and I, 
I really just had to keep my expenses very, very low. So my wife and I at the time, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. She was my partner at the time. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment. We had a housemate, so there were three of us in a small apartment, which cut our rent substantially. We paid very, very cheap rent, especially living in an inner-city suburb of Melbourne. Um, And I did a thing where I would pay myself kind of a set amount of money for the week and then everything else would go into a savings account. So I never actually got my full pay. And that was quite, I was living off quite a small, like a meagre amount really, um, and putting all the rest of it in savings and just kept doing that really just for, you know, for years and finally got that deposit. And at the same time, um, my wife had an investment property. She sold that and we put that money together and managed to buy a house, which was felt like a massive achievement. I think, I think, and then once you sort of buy the house and you don't have to save quite so much, you then sort of open up a bit. Like I've started going out for breakfasts again sometimes and definitely, you know, buying more coffees. And I think you can, you can also go quite far the other way. I'd become maybe a bit too frugal, I think, in the years before I actually bought my place, but I definitely don't regret it at all. No, you know, you know what? It's so funny. So I'm about a year and a half into home ownership now and I still can't relax. I still, I've only just upped the amount that I pay myself per week out of my pay. And it it was hard to do that. It's like I'm still in this savings mentality of, you know, I mean, it's always good to save for something, but I can't quite relax. I've got to keep doing it, which is a good and a bad thing, I think. I think so. And in our research today, we couldn't help but start with the barefoot investor who has clearly had a huge influence on young Australians, old Australians, Australians of any age, I think. I mean, who hasn't been talking about the bloody mojo accounts and splurge (laughs) cards and financial date nights, which I have to say I have not done and I don't know if I will ever do. But what do you think of the barefoot investor? Do you think he's been been good for Australians? I think he's been really good. I'm a bit of a fan. Look, I've got to be honest, I haven't done all of the steps, but it did teach me a lot about investing and superannuation and things that I just didn't, I had a real lack of knowledge. And I think that's, you know, these days we just can't. Like you just need to know more about these things, especially as women. I think we need to set ourselves up and, you know, have more financial knowledge. So I loved reading that book and I think it's it's really good. I think financial literacy is so important. I think so. And I also think he's good because he's quite conservative. There's no sort of fancy tricks or anything. It's just sort of him saying to you, sort of giving it to you pretty bluntly, you know, if you want to save money, you need to be realistic. You need to stop mucking around and here are some pretty easy things that basically anyone can do. So shout out to the barefoot investor. Well done. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so it's interesting. I think the biggest thing is like stopping spending is that that's really the biggest thing, stopping spending on things that you don't need to be spending on. And um, a London journalist, Michelle McGarr, started a no-spend movement in response to Black Friday. So Black Friday is a big sales event in the US, but it's kind of really spread to everywhere now. I mean, they do it in Australia. It's kind of it's become this thing. Um, and she wasn't allowed to spend on anything except mortgage repayments, bills, and $50 in groceries per week. She said she missed spending time with people that she loved, but which kind of sounds a bit depressing, but I think I think there's a kind of a, a, I think there is a move to stop spending. Do you know what I mean? And buying useless crap. And it kind of feeds into this um, 
folk, more of a focus on sustainability that people have these days? I think we're in this sort of awkward transition phase of sort of capitalism at the moment where we're either doing Black Friday or we're reading stories about people who didn't buy anything for a year and mm. lived on, you know, $50 a week when they didn't necessarily need to based on their income. So days like Black Friday would definitely encourage crazy spending for no reason. And I think I think it's a cool thing that she did it and I think it probably inspired a few people to maybe take on something a bit less extreme. Mm. Well, it's interesting around Black Friday, there are a few brands that were doing things that were having kind of anti-Black Friday sales where they were saying, okay, for this whole week, we're going to have a certain amount of discount to stop people um, like binge spending, essentially. So mm. instead of just having that, that one day where everyone just goes crazy, they're like, okay, look, this this discount is on for a week. So just get the things you really need. Don't just do it because you're in a rush and you want to buy all this stuff. Just think about it more consciously, which I thought was really good. Yeah. And I mean, it's clear that people are really interested and maybe want to be more frugal than they actually are because websites like um, stayathomemum.com.au is another, it's a big one in Australia run by um, a mum who gives sort of uh, frugal recipe ideas, frugal shopping ideas, just ideas for around the home for how to save money. The Frugal Woods is another website um, started by a US couple. That couple saves 70% of what they earn. So people are definitely reading these stories. It's just about whether or not they're actually taking the advice, I think. Yeah. So I think it's funny because I think on one side, you've got those people and you've got that movement. And then on the other side, you've got Afterpay having, you know, a huge moment and all those businesses that are like skyrocketing at the moment. So, you know, it's it's a funny thing, isn't it? It is, it is. And according to Finder, the average Australian mortgage is $384,700. So it's by far the biggest expense that Australians have, their mortgage repayments, and by far the biggest debt. Domain analyst Eliza Owen said plenty of Australians were already exceeding their minimum repayments, which is a good thing. But I mean, the question is there, instead of sort of being less frugal and and not um, and not purchasing those, you know, crazy Black Friday deals and putting the money in savings, should people just be putting more onto their mortgage and anything that they can onto their mortgage? Well, maybe, or perhaps investing. I guess if, you, if we talk about the barefoot investor, Scott Pape, I think he would say perhaps, you know, save money and invest. Well, that's a good time to mention that we took to the streets to ask people what their best saving tip was. I'm not the best saver, to be honest. Eat less, drink less. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, there's too many to count. I like to just buy secondhand items, basically because when you're finished with that item, you can then sell it for the same price that you paid for it. Making dinner with your friends or with your partner can be a nice way to avoid the expense of going out or making your own cocktails. Buying furniture off Gumtree and stuff like that that you can and budgeting for bills. Make sure you buy stuff on special. Don't pay full price or anything. And also paint your own art. Don't get Ubers. If I have to save money, I'm old school. I do not put it in the bank because, you know, I have access to it. My card. Can't be generous. Give some of it away. <laughs> don't, don't ever put air this one. This is terrible. <laughs> Today's guest lives and breeds low-cost living. Jared Roosh lives on an off-grid permaculture farm in Far East Gippsland, Victoria, called Hope Seed. The farm is zero cost and has 350 fruit trees, 25 chickens, 10 ducks, dairy goats, bees and veggies. Over the years, Jared has worked as a food and plant stylist and gardener. 
Jared is currently transitioning into the gift economy in which items are given freely as opposed to being traded or sold. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invite. So I think we should start with the gift economy. I don't exactly know how it works. I don't know if January does either. Can you explain to us what is the gift economy and what are the benefits of it? It's a way of living really as much as anything and it's much more based around uh, traditional societies and uh, Indigenous societies and the way that people lived. It's also one of the three ethics of permaculture, which um, sort of guides uh, a lot of my planning and sort of decision-making. It really is about sharing abundance. The gift economy is not based on a trade where I'll give you this if you give me that. It's a true thing of a gift and it is given by the giver and it's totally at the discretion of the giver, but it's something which builds communities and relationships. Okay, and when you say sharing abundance, does that mean that sort of on a practical level, you decide how much, for example, food you need and then anything above that, you're getting rid of all of it? You just need to work out what your your use is for, um, you know, for a year. Once you've stored what you need for your full year plus a bit, then um, anything over and above that is, uh, you know, what are you going to do with it? It's, you've already got everything you need. So it's, um, it, it's a way of kind of sharing it around and, you um, when it's given as a gift, it creates a, a cycle of generosity which um, builds community and builds relationships. And that's the that's the kind of what's, you know, as all old culture, that's what happens. And where did you learn about this, Jared? Were there people around you that were doing this or did you find out about it online or how did this happen for you? Well, it's a funny one. Uh, years ago, I bought a small farm in the Barossa Valley when I was 19 and, and I had this burning desire to see the landscape revegetated and brought back with biodiversity. I started to um, ask around with farmers, would you like any areas of your land revegetated? And they're like, well, yeah, but what, what's the catch? How much? And I was like, well, I just want to see trees in the ground. So if you're willing to cover the, the initial costs of getting the area prepped, then my time's free and, and I'll, I'll put it in there for you. And what that did was in a country area, um, it created this moment of um, of generosity where the – and I hadn't experienced it in that way before. All of a sudden, people were just like falling over themselves to give me gifts for doing this reveg work. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting because I haven't asked for anything, but it's coming kind of around. It's sort of like going around. It's like the old, the old um, goes around, comes around kind of concept. It's such a lovely concept. Do you find it's hard to explain it to sort of more cynical people who have sort of grown up with the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch when that's exactly what you're trying to offer them? Well, actually, the gift economy, is it's quite often thought of as being, um, well, it's just a free lunch, but it's not really because it's been <laughs> given as a gift and a gift has a value. And so the value has to be accepted. But, yeah, it's hard for people who are caught up in the rat race of having to pay mortgages and, you know, living in the suburbs and, and they're just, you know, caught in a cycle of having to go to work to just keep things going. Um, they, they find that difficult because everybody's got a handout. You know, everybody wants something to be able to take from you. That's why you have to go to work. What I found is living in a really remote area in a small community, especially of reasonably like-minded people, um, what ends up happening is people just end up sharing because where Hope Seed is is an hour and a bit from the nearest shop. It's in a place of, you know, real beauty and abundance, but it's, uh, it's a long way from any shops. 
if you don't have a spare part for your pump, for example, you know that you can rely on your friends in your town to have that part without having to run off to town. And knowing that you'll be there opening up your box of pump parts when the time comes as well. And that's kind of a way it works. And and people will be also going off and doing working bees for someone's building, which is just a given that that's what you do. And you might put aside what you had planned to do for the day. Um, or you may end up going up, I've just as a recent one, I've, I've, uh, a friend of mine is, um, is downsizing and moving um, away from a, a remote area and she had some goats. And anyway, she's she said, like, well, I need to get rid of some goats and I happen to be needing some goats. And um, she just gave them freely. But um, then when we were up at her property, I noticed that there was firewood that um, needed to be moved away from the shed and because of the fire threat that's coming in. So there was an opportunity to say, okay, well, how about I give you a hand, remove all of this this firewood and um, give, give her a hand with that. Now, that comes with ease. There's no transaction thing. It's just built on friendship. Well, it sounds lovely, Jared. It sounds it, it reminds me of that idea of, you know, like you go over to your neighbour's house for a cup of sugar and, you know, if you need something, you go and you talk to each other and you build these relationships and I think that sounds wonderful. Um, I want to know a bit more about your farm. So it's off-grid and it's a permaculture farm. Now, can you talk us through what that means? The The idea of permaculture is that it's based around three three ethics, which is earth care, people care and fair share of abundance. And it has a whole sense of set of principles, 12 principles or more, that uh, everything is applied through a planning sort of lens with this, these principles. And these principles are based around, uh, you know, observing and interacting and obtaining a yield and um, producing no waste, um, et cetera, et cetera. And basically the idea is that um, you're looking at one element of your system being able to complement the other. And so the, there's positive interactions. For example, the ducks and the chickens and the base of the fruit trees in the orchard scratches the grass away from the trees. It produces manure and it uh, takes away all of the insects underneath the trees and therefore reduces the amount of burden of um, coddling moth and uh, et cetera. And by having those interact with each other, there's less work for me. And so I can have something which is really very uh, abundant. So there's 350 fruit trees here, 100, 150 nuts, um, and uh, it's there's enormous amounts of um, of of um, biodiversity as well because I haven't had any spray on the property. There hasn't been any spray on this property now for over 30 years, and people give me grief because it's got blackberries on the on the fence lines. Um, and yeah, they're a noxious weed, but I'm just reluctant to um, to be brush cutting them all out because at the moment they're loaded with with uh, bees which uh, are in my hives and um, then they'll be abundant with delicious blackberries. Jared, do you think that this way of living can work in the big cities? Can it work when people have sort of the kind of mortgages they do or do you think it's just it's completely it's impossible when people are trying to pay off those kinds of loans? Look, I have to say that it's a difficult thing because people are in the throes of, um, of of being caught up in that. In fact, it's very difficult for them to get out of that. And the exhaustion factor kicks in on a, you know, on a Friday night and it's been a big week and it's hard for you to be able to apply the full principles that are being done here. But it can be done and what it means is maybe reducing um, how much you work 
and but also reducing the lifestyle that you have and maybe you know downsizing on your property or god forbid you actually move back to the country and take back to the land in you know on a fairly cheap and affordable piece of land and go back to living more in a natural state yeah, so Jared, back to your farm. So you say you have a low, co- uh, zero cost farm. Sorry. So does that mean you no mortgage or anything on that property? So there is no, there's no mortgage. The costs really at the moment are for vehicles, and also for at the moment I've got, um, I've got a, a gas bottles that I use during the middle of summer when it's too hot to have a fire on. I've got a Stanley stove which heats my hot water, does all my heating inside the house over winter and also does all my cooking. And I'm also in the process at the moment of building three um, three new uh, projects. One of them is um, a small gasification plant which is just built out a couple of drums and less than $100 worth of materials, uh, which is basically makes methane. So I can cook off methane instead of having to buy um, fossil fuels. And also two solar ovens, one as a parabolic dish and another one as a, like a pizza oven. And again, all, all those bits and pieces I found on the side of the road or at the tip um, or at the tip shop. Yeah, super easy sort of stuff. But yeah, uh, there's no costs other than, other than that. There's, I'm on solar, um, solar hot water backed up with the fireplace um, hot water. And yeah, we've got uh, ample amounts of um, rainwater stored away in concrete tanks so there's 77,000 litres of rainwater um, sitting there ready to fight a fire and I've also got the river running through the place as well which is pretty handy too. And Jared when you do need to buy things where's that money coming in from? Is it from the farm? Generally speaking where would the money come from? The money would come from um, where it comes from wherever that might be so I, I if if somebody uh, if i was giving something away and they wanted to give a financial um you know here's some cash well that's a gift back but it's not something i've asked for and it's not something i've implied through the okay. gift okay yeah fair enough have you had any sort of interesting reactions from family or friends when you've told them that you wanted to transition to the gift economy both of my kids have been really supportive i think it's great um and look, it is a transition as well because I'm still in the process. You know, I've only I've only re- recently returned to the, the farm after uh, being away, and uh, yeah, there's a transition to to get back onto. Um, you know, I need to be able to get back into growing my cereal crops and um, etc. But I mean, my the the plan is to be self sufficient in uh, my fruits and vegetables and my herbs and seeds or my nuts. Um, my timber, my energy, uh, milk, meat, eggs, um, and also to look to grow grains down in the orchard um, as well, where it's covered, um, so that um, so that I've got grains available for the for the animals as they need to, a little bit of concentrate every now and then. Mm. And do you feel freed now that you're not living in the sort of in the economy of money or capitalism? Yeah, super freeing. It's fantastic. You know, I can I can work as long as I want to work during the day or I can um, I can sleep in. If I want to do a three-hour stint of work in the morning, have a, an hour's worth of, um, you know, siesta and then work my way through the, into the evening, um, I can do it and it's no problems and I don't have a – I don't have a timetable that I have to work to other than the seasonal timetables, which are, you know, quite broad and, and dynamic. 
Well, it sounds really wonderful, Jared. And I think you've definitely probably inspired a lot of people out there that have been listening to this. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. It's been so interesting learning all about the gift economy. Thank you. No worries. I'm Emily Power, the Domain Magazine's editor for Victoria, and I'm a born-again cheapskate. I'm saving for my first home, but in order to get that deposit, I've enacted an extreme savings plan that is quite unusual. Before I became a property journalist, I was a fashion editor. Being in the fashion industry, I was tempted by beautiful clothes, makeup, soirees, and the social scene. And back in those days, and I'm 36 now, so I'm talking about 10 years ago, I didn't have the self-esteem that I do now. And I thought that in order to fit into the fashion industry, I had to look a certain way and behave a certain way. And what happened to me was I racked up a $7,000 credit card twice. I did it once and I paid it down with some discipline. And then I ran it up again, entirely on socializing and clothes shopping. By this point, I joined Domain, and the turning point for me was attending an auction in Fitzroy in Melbourne, a very trendy suburb that a lot of first-home buyers would hope to get into, but you need quite a bit of money to do so. I was covering the auction for the paper, and I watched as a young couple cried and embraced as the hammer fell on their dream apartment. And I went back to the car before going back to the office to write up the auction report, and I started to cry. Their joy for me was so striking because I felt that that was so far away for me. Not only did I have a credit card debt, but I had no savings, and I was in such bad habits with my shopping and spending that I didn't see any way out of the mire. And I could tell for this couple in Fitzroy that purchasing that property meant more to them than any clothing purchase I could ever make would mean to me. That was the moment that I decided to change my habits. But in order to get my foot on the property ladder and even buy the most humble apartment, I had to first change my ways. After that auction, I went and sat down with my parents, who I'm very close to, and I came clean to them about my spending habits. I laid out collector letters, unpaid bills, bank account statements. And I sat on the floor in tears whilst they silently opened the mail and looked at the gravity of the problem. I was so upset and I said to them, I really want to buy a home, but I don't know how to do this. I can't manage my money and I wish I could just get pocket money. And a light bulb moment went off for my dad And he and I together devised the pocket money savings plan. What the pocket money savings plan is, was my plan to wipe debt and accumulate a deposit to buy my first home. It's an extreme method of saving. It's not something that you can do in the long term, but it is an aggressive correction to previous financial problems and teaches you to live frugally to achieve your goal of first home ownership. My salary goes into a bank account that I can't touch. It's in my parents' name and only they have access to it through internet banking. I don't know the numbers or the passwords. 
from there, I'm given $200 a week into my account from my salary, and that's what I live on. My bills, my rent and mobile phone and all of those sorts of incidentals are direct debited out of that main salary pool that's in my parents' name. And the $200 a week pays for my food, my entertainment, petrol, coffees, few toiletries and those sorts of things. I can get another $150 to make it $350 a week if I need without making a dent in my savings plan. By enacting that, I was able to wipe my debts and start accumulating a deposit. I shared the story in a column called I'm 33, My Parents Give Me Pocket Money in 2016 on domain.com.au and it went viral. 95% of the feedback was really positive. I connected with other young people millennials mainly, who felt overwhelmed by the pressure on Instagram and social media to dress and look a certain way, to present to the world a lifestyle that was enviable when really they could barely afford it themselves, had no savings, but were still hanging on to the great Australian dream of home ownership, which seemed to be further and further away. I did get trolled. I did get some negative feedback. But it also led to publicity where I ended up talking about my experiences on the project. I went on to SBS and I even ended up on the Sunrise program on Channel 7 where former Treasurer John Hewson weighed into the debate about whether or not young people are going about it the right way to save for a first home and the challenges here and now. Baby boomers started to weigh in as well. It really changed my life. Penguin Publishing sat up and paid attention and I got a book deal from it. And um, two years later, the book How to Buy a Home came out, which was me detailing what it was like to be a property editor on the road to first home buying, sharing both my lifestyle changes that had led to me accumulating a deposit, as well as bringing into the picture my property knowledge uh, and expert advice from those that I'd interviewed over my years at Domain, being an editor and reporter. It's changed my life in so many ways, not least of all the fact that I am searching for my first home, which when the column came out in 2016, had you have asked me that, I would have said, I'm on the road, but it's still a pipe dream. The reality is ever closer. All right, Rose, now it's time for pop culture homework. Now, I've done the homework this week and I've got two recommendations for you. And I've got to just... You're leading the charge today. This is great (laughs) to see. I love it. Yeah, I am. And I've got to preface it by saying they're a little bit off-centre. So just be prepared for that. Okay, that's good. We like that. Yeah, you've got to use your imagination a little bit with these ones. So my first one is the animated film Up from 2009, directed by Pete Docter. Up, that's the one where they sort of fly away with the balloons. Yeah, the the house, yep, with all the balloons. That's right. Now, okay, so... Just stay with stay with me. I'm going to get I'm to the money bit. I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. It's tough though. So anyone that's seen Up will remember the beginning montage is kind of like its own little film. And Carl, he and his wife, Ellie, are saving up to go to Paradise Falls and they're putting money in this glass jar all the time. And as the montage goes on, there's moments where they have to smash the jar, they have to use it for emergencies, the roof falls in, all these different things happen. And then they, you know, get a new jar and they put it in again. And They never actually go to Paradise Falls, so Ali gets sick and dies, and that's the end of that montage. 
and they never get to use these savings. It's really I'm sad to cry even trying. Like, <laughs> I'm remembering the first five minutes of this film, which is an animated kids' film. Yeah, I remember it's everyone very deep. in the cinema sobbing yeah. about three minutes in. Yeah, it's very well done. It's a it's a fantastic example of storytelling, I think. But you know, look, the movie does continue on and. Carl gets to a point where he says, well, he thinks within himself that he's going to go and do this adventure and, you know, they've saved up for their whole lives and they never got to do it and he's going to go and do it and that's the rest of the film. But I thought that was kind of an interesting one on the savings front about, you know, it is good to save but at the same time you've got to make sure you do do those fun things as yeah, well. Yeah, and very symbolic of sort of adult life, you know, saving up and then having to smash it all the time for kids and emergencies and roofs and... Exactly. So we're really learning some hard lessons in that children's animated film. I know, kids. yeah. So my second one is also a little bit off-centre, so just stay with me with this one. So this, okay. is the, this is the 2019 film Hustlers, directed by Lorraine Scafaria. Now, did you manage to see that in cinemas, Rose? Is this the one about the strippers? It is. It is about the strippers. So it's actually... I've heard good things. This is with Jennifer Lopez. Yes. Yep. And she's fantastic in it. So the film is based on a New York Magazine's 2015 article called The Hustlers at Scores, the ex-strippers who stole from mostly rich men and gave to, well, themselves by Jessica Pressler. So that was an article that went viral. That's a good title. The film follows a crew of savvy former strip club employees who band together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients. So it basically explores the effect of the GFC on the sex industry, which is something I don't think anyone really spoke about or you didn't see. You didn't see the effect of perhaps the GFC on these other industries and how that, I don't know, what, what like the ripple effect, I guess. Absolutely. So I love where you're going with this frugal living here is the strippers having to turn the tables on Wall Street's <laughs> fat cats and it's sort of like a like a like a Robin Hood sort of vibe but for strippers is that what you're saying it is, yeah it is and look you know they're not just strip they you know no one's just a stripper they're their daughters their carers their mothers you know and this They're re- savers. Yeah. They're frugal. Yeah, they are frugal. And you know what? This affected their livelihood. And, you know, and then the clients that are coming in are people that made money off the GFC. While everyone is struggling and people went bankrupt and lost their whole, you know, their houses and their so much. And then you've got these kind of big Wall Street fat cats who are still coming into the club and they're the ones that have made money off everyone's downfall. So I think you don't really feel very sorry for the so-called victims in that film. Look, I love where you've gone with that. You've taken it somewhere completely new, completely unexpected. Two very different films. Two very JJ, different I'm proud films. of you. I think you're really coming into your own into your own with this <laughs> pop culture homework. Thank you. I, I don't like to be too literal about it. You know what I mean? I think it's good to kind of you know people use their imagination, and it is a really good film. It's already made over 150 million at the box office. So what does that say? No, I've heard it's amazing, and I've heard that J Lo is incredible in it. So that's some good homework for me. All right, Rose, well, it's that time to say goodbye. Oh, bye, JJ. Um, <laughs> I miss you and I miss the uh, the others in the office and I can't wait to speak to you next week. Oh, likewise. All right, Rose, see you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Somewhere Else, a podcast by Domain. Somewhere Else is produced by January Jones, Rose Donahue, and Kate Bartels. It is edited by Steve Claxton. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. Send us to your mum. It's how we get the word out. We'll see you soon, somewhere else.
This episode of Somewhere Else was brought to you by Domain Insure. Powered by property experts, Domain Insure is a smart, simple way to purchase insurance. Get a quote in under two minutes at domain.com.au slash insurance slash podcast. Domain Insure AFSL 502088 for the insurer Zurich Australian Insurance, LTD AFSL 232504.